Good morning, friends. Can I get in one last happy Thanksgiving before we move on to the next holiday? Happy Thanksgiving to y'all. Hope you had a great uh, week and weekend of celebrating with your families and friends. You know, when we hear that word, Thanksgiving, something comes to mind. We all have a picture in our head of what Thanksgiving is supposed to be like. There are some sights and, and smells and sounds. Who's there? What's on the menu? The traditions and the games that we play, they're all in our head. Whether it's fried rice with, uh, and, and, and short ribs with friends, or it's turkey and pumpkin pie at your parents' house, we've got an expectation of what that Thanksgiving experience should be like. My mental picture for Thanksgiving uh, is at my grandmother's house with my cousins and my aunties and uncles, and uh, my brother and I generally cook the meal, and that's a ton of fun to do with him, and, and then afterwards we play vintage video games, and uh, unfortunately this year all that didn't pan out. You know, our vision of Thanksgiving, that picture that we had in our head, just didn't kind of come true. Uh, one of the family members that's a really important part of our Thanksgiving gathering is coming to the end of a really long battle with cancer. And we learned a couple days ago that it just would have been too intense for, uh, for her to have all that happening around her. So we, we pulled back, you know, and I know that many of you had had similar experiences, maybe even just last week, where Thanksgiving just wasn't what it was supposed to be, you know. Whether it's uh, something silly that you feel like ruined the Thanksgiving experience, like just overcooking the turkey and ah, it's dry again, you know? Or maybe it's something serious that derailed your Thanksgiving vision. Somebody's missing from the table this year. We all have a vision of that ideal Thanksgiving, and sometimes it just doesn't materialize. In the same way, I believe we have a vision for what Christian community is supposed to look like. You know, how we expect to feel when we walk into the lobby and when we come to church, or what a life group should be doing week to week. You know, I know this, I'm really confident in this because I hear comments, a range of comments all the time from, you know, we're really longing for community, we're hungry for relationships, to uh, we're, we're trying but we're having a hard time kind of getting connected, sorry, <clears throat> uh, to, you know, we're, we're loving our group and we're, we're building beautiful, deep relationships and we're really feeling this is, like this is home. And all of those comments imply that there's a, there's a standard, there's an expectation uh, in our head for what Christian community ought to be. And I wonder what that looks like. I wonder what that means for you. You know, does it look like sitting in a living room with Bibles open on your lap, studying God's word rigorously with people that you love and respect? Or is it simply having, you know, knowing that you have people to, to text or call, a good support network that you can reach out to when you're hit with a crisis, when you're in the slumps of depression or grief? Or maybe for you, community feels, you know, you picture food and a fun family environment where there's just laughter and kids running around and all that, all that energy. And whether we've said it out loud or not, we, we have hopes uh, dreams, vision for what we want fellowship to be and mean to us. But in the same way that Thanksgiving can be derailed, unfortunately, so can our dreams for Christian community. Disappointments and tricky relationships can, can seem to put it uh, really out of reach. And surprises and challenges can come up that, that just crush our hopes for Christian community. Maybe for you, you know, almost three years of, of COVID stress and distance and, and tension just made community seem impossible. 
Maybe for you what's led to disappointment is that I experienced great fellowship in the past in like a golden era of my faith. Maybe in you know, your college days or that young family uh, era, you know, phase where you were having babies with other, other couples and stuff. And, or maybe you went to a, a retreat and had a, a really great mountaintop experience and I'm just having a hard time getting back to any of that. Maybe we recently moved and you had to leave your old church that you loved and just having a hard time meeting new people and building relationships. Or maybe it's hard because the life group's pastor's just doing a bad job and won't put you in a life group. That's me. <laughs> maybe you are in community and you know the people in your group or your team just aren't showing up or following through. Maybe you've been in a group where you've felt hurt or judged, looked down upon. Maybe it feels like we're trying to do community, but this, what we're doing is just not meeting people's needs. Or maybe it's just because I don't know what my feelings and expectations are for Christian community, and they're just kind of shapeless and unclear. Well, I think we have some good news in front of us today, uh, because I'm super confident that today's passage can help with all of this. Because it gives us four ideas that can bring shape and clarity to our vision for Christian community. Really God's vision for Christian community. And it's going to instruct us and equip us to be really great contributors to it. In other words, we're going to see what that neighborhood of God's people is supposed to look like. And we're going to learn how we can be good neighbors within it. But before we dive into the word, uh, I want to invite us to ask the Lord to open our hearts and lead us through uh, scripture today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for making us your people, uh, for sending Jesus to die for us uh, and to rise so that we might be brought into your new covenant and be an eternally loving relationship with you. We don't deserve that. But we acknowledge you have given that to us by your mercy and your grace. And we want to respond responsibly and be good neighbors to one another within this group of people that you have formed by the work of Christ. So, Lord, we submit ourselves to you. We open our hearts and our minds. We want to learn from you. We want to be reshaped and uh, redirected by you and convicted today, Lord. So would you please teach us? Would you please guide us? Uh, Just have your way. May your will be done. We love you and we lift this time up to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We're about eight weeks into a series called Who's My Neighbor? And the series is asking and answering the question, just who's around me and who do I need to be connecting with and caring for and loving, uh, reaching out to so that they can find and follow Jesus? We've learned so far that the category of neighbor includes difficult people. It includes people in authority above us. It includes the fatherless, the unborn Our neighbors are people in other countries. And then today, we're going to realize that, discover that our neighbors are actually sitting right next to us in church. We're going to talk about how to be great great Christian neighbors within Christian community. And it might sound strange to talk about or think of each other as neighbors within the church because we don't often use that term, right? We, we probably think of each other mainly as friends or family, uh, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ or aunties, uncles, if you want to kind of show respect. And all of that is great and, and totally biblical. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Yet scripture also discusses God's people as neighbors, and just so you don't have to take my word for it, I want to show a few examples. A couple places where we're going to see this is in Exodus 20 and Leviticus 19. In Exodus, it's where you see the Ten Commandments. 
And those address how the people of God are to treat their neighbors. You know, and it says things like, don't lie about them. Don't murder them. Exodus 20, 17 says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So here's an example of God addressing his people, his family, his nation as neighbors and giving them commandments, instructions so that they can have healthy community with one another, right? Another example is in Leviticus 19, which this is a really big deal passage because it's at the foundation of all that's quoted in the New Testament. In other words, uh, when you hear love your neighbor as yourself in the New Testament, they're quoting Leviticus 19. It's a really big passage. It talks about how God's people were to not oppress their neighbors or to rob them. They were to judge each other fairly and in righteousness according to God's standard. They're to protect their neighbor's reputation. And this passage is cool to me because it even uses neighbor and family terms interchangeably. Look at this. Leviticus 19, 17 through 18 say this. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Not only is this an Old Testament idea, you also see this in the New Testament. Galatians 5.14 is an example that talks about the family of God as neighbors as well. It says this, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so all that to say, it's okay, it's good, it's right, it's biblical to think of each other as neighbors in Christ. And so because the Bible is so full of this, because it's in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it's built into the Ten Commandments, it's showing us that this is a really big deal. It's a really big part of what we're supposed to be doing and, and being the people of God. And so it's so important that we get this right and we know how to be great neighbors. This matters a lot. You know, we've said and shown this quite a few times over the past few months. You've heard this before, but the Lord has given his church three directions or trajectories to focus our work and ministry in. And that's inward, outward, and upward. It's caring laterally for one another. It's moving out to people who don't yet know Jesus. And it's vertically lifting up our prayer and our praise like we just did moments ago uh, to the Lord. Inward, outward, upward. And so being a good neighbor is Christian, in Christian community is at least a third of what we're supposed to be all about. And we need to make sure that we're giving it the attention that it's due. That's why this matters a lot. That's why that we have to get this right. You know, one comment or question that uh, we've received a few times recently has been a helpful gauge for us on this issue. And it's been noted that we, uh, we care really well for refugees. And we are. Uh, that we send generous gifts to pastors and missionaries overseas in Japan and Uganda and Ukraine. You've heard about that. We do great disaster relief work in Northern California and Florida in a couple weeks. We build in Baja, and all of that is good and wonderful and right. We should be doing that. But it seems at the same time like a lot of our own people have a lot of unmet needs. What are we doing about that? Like how are we caring for us? That's a very fair point, an observation. It's the right question to ask. Like, are we being faithful in all three of those directions, those dimensions that God has designed for us? Or are we overly focused on one or two to the detriment of another? That's another reason this topic is really important, why we need to work on this today. Second, 
being a good Christian neighbor matters a ton because if you're in relationship with God, then our relationship with God's people is supposed to look a certain way. We said it's half of the Ten Commandments. It's love the Lord with all your heart and it's love your neighbor as yourself and those things go together. Those commands are inseparable, you know? And so the Christian life is not only about me exclusively getting saved and then I have this perfectly private one-on-one relationship with God and that's all. It's, of course, where it starts, right? But it moves outward from that. It's, that's not all it is. You know, once we're saved, God works in us to live and to operate and relate with other people in, in new, redemptive, grace-filled ways. And it's in relationship where our faith in the Lord really gets put into practice and tested and refined. So being a good neighbor to other Christians is a natural outworking of our relationship with God. It's another reason this matters a lot. And third, this matters a ton because our relationship as Christian neighbors is supposed to be a model for non-Christians, for the coworkers around us, for our social circles where people don't know Jesus, for people at the animal hospital right here who watch us come in on the golf carts or walk from our cars into the lobby. You can hear our conversations. What is that looking like to them? For people in storage, etc., you know, the same thing, see us out around the church. What are, they, what are they seeing about God and his people in our interactions, our relationships with each other, our community, is meant to witness and testify to the goodness and the grace of God at work among us, right? And so that's why it's worth our time today, because being a good neighbor in Christian community of God's people is at the foundation of our faith, because it's an outgrowth of our relationship with God, because God calls us in one of those three directions, and because our neighboring is on display for the world to see. So we know that we are neighbors, We know why it's important to be a good neighbor within Christian community. And now, let's look at a passage that's going to outline really nicely what we're supposed to do to be good neighbors in Christian community. Let's, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 12. That's where we're going to be today. And Romans 12 is going to show us that a good Christian neighbor is growing, gifted, genuine, and generous. Growing, gifted, genuine, and generous. Let's look at verses 1 and 2, and we'll start working on that growing point. Start at verse 1, Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What this is saying is that Christians are to be a different, holy community that constantly changes to be an ever-increasing alignment with God's standard for us. That's hard work, but that effort comes not from us, but from a much more powerful source. That change and that transformation, that renewal is rooted in the mercies of God, says verse 1. That's the saving work of Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb. In other words, we grow out of the death and resurrection of Christ. Amen? And when I was 12 years old, I started learning a lot about fishing. It was so fun and relaxing for me. And at that age, I was in the process of graduating from little bluegills and perch, you know, little pond fish, to hopefully larger, you know, bass, big fish. And one day I had a, a line in at my local lake. I'm jigging and 
and it got slammed and I felt a bigger tug than I'd ever, you know, experienced before. And I pulled up this really nice looking bass and I was so pumped about this fish. This is my first big catch and I wanted to make it a trophy. I wanted to get this thing taxidermied and memorialized this monster. I now feel very different about the ethics of all that, but it was a long time ago, so sorry. But I put this fish in a bucket and I took him home and I don't know why I was 12 years old. I named him Dave, okay? And uh, I started... I started calling around uh, to, you know, taxidermy shops, and I quickly realized this is going to be too expensive for a 12-year-old to afford. So I was like, oh, shoot, what do I do with this dead fish now? In this picture, he was all slimy. He'd been dead for a couple days. He was stiff. He was all rigor mortis seed. So that's why I had gloves on. Not because I'm soft, you know. But uh, I might have been at that age. You can tell, obviously. So this fish died, and I felt terrible about that. Um, I didn't know what to do. My dad had a really great idea, though. Uh, we had a fruit tree in our backyard that was kind of struggling. It wasn't being very productive, and we had some hard soil, you know. And so my dad said, let's, let's bury him near that tree, under that tree. And after we put Dave under that tree, uh, sorry, Dave Romero, there's nothing to do with you. <laughs> After we put Dave under that tree, it started doing really well, and it, it had color, and it grew, and it blossomed, and it was really productive. Dave's death caused growth and fruitfulness. We're kind of like that as Christians. The growth that happens in us comes from the truth that we are planted in the one who died for us, right? We are no longer pulling nutrients from this dry, hard, deficient, empty soil of society or ourselves, but from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who gave his life so that we could be transformed and renewed and alive in the will of God, amen? And we do all this in view of God's mercies. That's what that means. And what that transformative growth looks like is the constant giving of ourselves to God for his purpose, devoting our hearts and our minds to him more and more, saying, Lord, you control me, you shape me, you direct me, God, instead of culture. You teach me and you inform me on what is good and acceptable and perfect in your sight, not the predominant narratives and trends that are floating around me. And I think this mainly happens in the context of relationship. I think it can happen in personal, private devotion, but I think more often God uses community to accomplish these things because relationships are such a great tool for transformation, aren't they? Like when we share ourselves, our stories, our struggles with other people, that's when we can discover where we need to change. It's where we find our blind spots. Like, I didn't see that. We need other people to help us discover those things. It's where we get ideas from other people on how, how they're growing and being renewed and transformed by the Lord. That's where we're convicted and held accountable to the standard that God has set for us. And so if we're going to grow from God's mercies in the context of community, that means we need to know and be comfortable with the fact that we are not perfect or a finished product, right? It's easy to say. It's harder to really feel and believe sometimes. We need to know that we have a long way to go in becoming enough like Jesus. We, need, we know that we need to be transformed. And I feel like it's really popular these days to, to say and to pretend, you know, you're perfect just the way you are. You know, don't change a thing. And if anybody says anything contrary or critical, they're just being hateful and intolerant and they're just shaming and they're full of bigotry. You know, I, I kind of get some of that, but if we really truly subscribe to that consistently, like how are we supposed to grow? You know, 
How are we supposed to change and be transformed and renewed? We can't. And so Christians, we have to resist conformity to that concept, like verse 1 said. Instead, subscribe to the idea that we do need to be transformed and renewed by God. That means we're okay with being called out and corrected. It means we're okay. I'm okay with being wrong. I want to learn. And so do you. It means we're okay with letting relationships challenge us and drive us to set goals for the ways that God wants us to grow. We're okay with people asking us those deep, piercing questions, caring critique, loving nudges from our Christian neighbors that remind us of maybe the truth that we have forgotten, the gospel that we have lost sight of, that brings us back into alignment with God's will. And so in view of God's mercies, good neighbors grow in those ways. We know we need it. We look at what God has done for us through Jesus and then we're transformed as we give our whole selves to him in response to the incredible redemption that he's worked for us and purchased for us at the cross. Being a good neighbor means we grow. It means we know we need it. it. means we help others to grow as well as we draw from what Jesus did for us in his death and his resurrection. Being a good neighbor means we grow. Being a good neighbor in Christian community also means that we share the gifts that have been given to us. Being a good neighbor means that we're gifted. Let's look into verses 3 to 8 and try to find that. Romans 12, 3. Let's read this together. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. What's happening here is this, that after Jesus died and rose and went to heaven, he sent us his Holy Spirit, who places within us, believers, these divinely empowered abilities when we're saved. We refer to those as spiritual gifts, and this is one of four primary passages in the New Testament that talk about them and discuss them. But why do you think it starts with this phrase, don't think of yourself too highly? That's about humility. That's telling us that we are to use our gifts in humility. It's the key to how we use our gifts. It's thinking of others as more important. It's prioritizing our neighbors in Christ over our, ourselves. It's considering their needs. Humility realizes that no matter what my spiritual gift is and how great I think that is, it comes not from any accomplishment or merit, anything great that I did on my own, but it comes from God the Father because of the death and resurrection of Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. So I can't take credit for that. Humility knows that our giftedness is not for self-promotion. It's not for elevation or notoriety or feeling better about myself internally, feeling better than others externally. But it's for the building up and the betterment of the church family. Humility sees that our gifts are meant to bless other people. Really, that any benefit to me is just a byproduct. Humility helps us to be gifted neighbors. Not only are we to use our gifts in humility, but 
Also, according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. That's a very tricky phrase there. It's a unique way to say that uh, when we use the gifts that we've been given, that shows our trust in the Lord. We don't let our gifts sit on the shelf and go stale and collect dust. We use them in faith. That's what this is saying. You know, I, I have to confess, uh, I may have a problem. I have 10 guitars right now, and I know that's terrible. I only play five of them. That makes it even worse. That is guitar gluttony, and I hate that, and I'm sorry. I'm working on it. I know I need to sell some because I'm not using all of them. Some of them just hang on my wall as decoration, and that's a waste, <laughs> you know? Ah. So I need to sell them because I'm not using them. Or, I don't know, maybe not now because I just use them for this illustration. But <laughs> you get the point. Why have it if I'm not going to use it? You know, if I'm not being faithful to those guitars or playing them like they deserve, we need to similarly use the gifts that we have been given. They're not just for decoration, just to feel better about ourselves. So let's not be passive or neglectful with our spiritual gifts, but let's demonstrate our faith in the Lord and put them into practice. Let's understand what he's called us to do and then eagerly, wholeheartedly, energetically use what he's given us. That's why Paul says, hey, if teaching is your gift, teach. Like, prepare well, go hard, let it rip, really teach. If you're going to serve, then serve. I think what he's doing with that interesting, you know, uh, kind of, symmetrical phrasing he's using there is, is emphasis. He's saying, really go for it. If you're going to do it, do it, you know, like italics or something. Do it like you mean it. If you're given the gift of exhortation, take that gift out of, the, out of the case and play it. Like, go encourage people and challenge people. If you're going to contribute, do it generously. If you're going to lead, lead with intensity and urgency. When you're meeting a practical need with mercy, do it cheerfully. Great example of this is somebody in my life group uh, who works in the ER at a pretty intense local hospital, and she helps people when they are at their worst. It's a chaotic, loud, messy, bloody, exhausting environment to work in. But she says she loves it. She's clearly gifted with mercy, and she uses that gift very cheerfully. She's also one of our first responders, so just know that if you ever pass out in worship service or you choke on communion today, she'll probably save your life and have a good attitude about it, which I think is really nice. So thanks for that. I don't want to say her name, though. Another way we use our gifts in humility and in faith is just realizing that we need other Christians and that other believers around us, our Christian neighbors, need us as well. Because depending on the church family requires faith in God. It means I'm not self-sufficient. I can't do this all on my own. i got to trust, you know? And considering the needs of other people, that requires humility, right? Faith, humility, using our spiritual gifts. One of these needs popped up last week as I was writing this message, and I just stumbled into a really beautiful example of this dynamic in action of faithfully carrying out your gifts and being sensitive to the needs of others with humility. There's a gentleman in our church who has been dealing with, uh, with homelessness for quite a while and has been pretty poorly supported by the Veterans Association. And, and on Thanksgiving Day, he, he could have been cold and alone. Uh, but I learned that one of our families uh, had him over for dinner to eat and to shower and to do laundry and be warm and loved. Even helped on that day, even helped patch up his window in his van where he, where he stays. And that's using your gifts in faith and in humility. That's thinking about a neighbor's need and contributing and showing mercy and serving. And that really melted my heart this week. I was so fired up to, to learn that. We need each other 
and we depend on the gifts that God has given us. So friends, if you've not yet discovered your spiritual gifts, I want to challenge you to ask another Christian this week, somebody who's maybe seen you in action, serving, uh, trying ministry out, like, hey, what do you think my gift might be? Help me find this thing. If you do know how the Lord has gifted you, but just aren't using those gifts, uh, let us know that you know, you're interested in serving in a ministry. Uh, ask any team leader you see wearing you know, a different colored shirt today, like, like ushers or first responders or tech, how, how you can help. Check in with your life group leader. Go to the next steps table after the service and, and look, look at all the check boxes for ways that you can plug in and serve. Talk to the staff about how you can, uh, how you can jump in. Check out our serve page on our website. There are a lot of, of channels, avenues where, where you can serve and start trying to use your gifts. We want to do our best to, uh, to try to find you a spot where you can put this into practice. A good neighbor is gifted. We just saw that. A good neighbor is growing. And third, good Christian neighbors are also genuine and generous. Good Christian neighbors are genuine and generous. This will help us finish our Romans 12 passage today. Look at that in verses 9 to 13. Let's read that together. Verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. A little bit of Greek really quick. The word genuine that we saw at the beginning of that passage comes from a Greek word, on hypocritas. Does that sound familiar? Hypocrite? It means without hypocrisy, literally. In Greek literature and culture and history, a hypocrite was the term for a play actor, a stage actor who would hide their true identity behind a mask. And what a really clear point this is making, that Christians don't do that. There's no mask within Christian community. We take it off. In other words, a good neighbor within Christian community is authentic and truthful and non-pretentious and really sincere. Christians keep it real because there's no shortage of fakeness and hidden motives and backstabbing and playing games and two-facedness like all around us, right? And so Christian communities has a, has a great opportunity to not conform to that like we saw in verse 2 and instead be transformed by the mercies of God and, and let our expressions of love be genuine. I mean, if, if we have been transformed and renewed by a true and real Savior, then we can show a true and real love, right? That's what this is telling us to do. So what this means is that when we give, when we serve, it is never to get something in return, whether affirmation or attention or approval or acceptance. That's not genuine love. That is a selfish transaction. So when we do kind things for other believers, it's never to earn points. It's never to tailor our image it's never to create leverage, like you owe me one. No, there's no calculating. There's no holding our cards close to our vest as we serve. We show our love like this because this is how love was shown to us, right? I think this means at least three things for genuine love. One way we can show genuine love is by being transparent. When we're not transparent, it's often because we're protecting an image that we want to project. 
You remember these old overhead projectors from last century? I wonder if Gen Z and our alphas have seen this before. But the sheets that you put on them are called transparencies, right? Then light shines through them, and then everyone can all of a sudden see the lyrics to Lord, I Lift Your Name on High, or like that class syllabus from 1999, you know. If you put a non-transparent sheet on there, it's just dark, and there's nothing to read or, or sing along with. And we're all lost and just wondering, like, what are we doing, you know? It's true for these projectors as well. There's a transparent lens on there, but if you cap that, nothing comes through. The light can't shine. And then all of a sudden, nobody knows the verses and and what's going on. But when we're transparent with one another, we can see how Jesus wants to shine in and through us, right? It allows real relationships to develop, and, and true Christian community can actually happen. Completely understand, this can totally take time. It should. It's actually scary, and we can feel exposed sometimes. I get that. But it's definitely something we should all push ourselves towards as we build and earn trust with one another. And then once that trust is there, let's start sharing real, genuine, uh, substantial stories and situations and struggles, showing that we love each other with, with nothing to hide. And let Jesus shine through all of that. Transparent, genuine love does that. I totally understand there may be some cultural values clashing here. Um, There may be, you may be coming from a a shame honor culture where it's just, you don't don't impose that on people. Or if you say too much, it's it's embarrassing, it's shameful. The Bible is telling us we we need to overcome that. Or I also hear things people say, I also hear people say things about like life group experiences or community gatherings where like, I I don't want to be forced to share. Don't make me talk. That's not what I'm here for. Or on the other end, somebody in that same group might feel like, ah, I feel like we're just stuck in the shallow end. We're not, we're not going anywhere. There's no depth, you know? And I get all of that. Maybe it's okay to be there for a minute, just for a little bit. But we can't stay there if we're going to be transparent and genuine. And we saw in the first few verses of Romans 12 that we're all here for deep, transformative spiritual growth. And I believe that growth can't happen in community where we're guarded. I believe that that transformation can't happen unless we're transparent. And so let's gently and patiently and lovingly help each other to move toward that genuine transparency by letting them know, like, I'm with you. It's okay. We, we want to develop this culture of oneness and same teamness, like, like I've got your back. And so in those moments of delicate sharing, we're going to handle it delicately. In those moments where people share their sensitive stories and they show a lot of courage in doing that, we're going to encourage them. When our Christian neighbors let their guard down, show their cards, we're going to react with a lot of respect and care. I want to be really realistic with how much, how fast we grow in this, with our expectations in this area. And one approach that I think could be helpful is to think on a scale of 1 to 10. If you've ever talked to me about anything, you know that I live my life on a scale of 1 to 10. I love this. And I just want to share that joy with you. I think it's a helpful like, metric. And so I want to encourage you to honestly grade yourself on scale of 1 to 10 for how transparent, how open, how genuine you are with other people. Am I being real or am I faking it with my life group, with my disciple or my mentor, with my Christian circle? Just be honest with yourself. And then think, what's going to get me just a tenth of a point further? If I'm at a 4.5 right now, what's going to take me to, to 4.6? You know, going from a 2 to a 10 in one night, that could be too much. You know, I understand that. 
But I want to challenge us to find where we're at now and identify just one step we can take to go a little bit further and grow in our transparency. That means share a life update next time. Volunteer to pray, even if you're uncomfortable doing that out loud. When you sense the Lord prompting you to chime in and confess, like, get this off your heart, you know, just go for it. When you sense that somebody else is being vulnerable, really opening themselves up, and you're hearing, oh, I actually struggle with that too, maybe say that out loud. Like, I'm with you in that. That's both of us. Let them know they're not alone. I think these things can help us to show genuine love as good neighbors in Christ. Transparency. Another way we can keep it real and genuine is by helping each other to hate evil and hold on to good. That might sound weird. It doesn't sound like those things fit together. But in the raw original Greek, it just says genuine love. There's no verb. And then after that phrase, there's a string of participles doing these things. That's that's what participles are in Greek. And so hating evil and holding on to good are expressions they're details. They're implications of genuine love. Does that make sense? Genuine love does this stuff. That's what it's saying. Hates evil and holds on to good. I think Pastor Gary highlighted this really well last week when he talked about how there's a lot in our culture that is wrongly celebrated as good. Say this with no apology. The right to kill the unborn, gender confusion, sexual licentiousness, and in Christian community, We have neighbors that can help us to discern what's truly good and what's actually evil. And we all need to be humble enough to hear that and to receive and consider that input and and be open to being convicted and corrected on what we think is good but is actually evil. Like Like a good neighbor in Christ should be able to say, bro, like we really shouldn't be watching that show. That's that is trash. That's just evil, that's just glamorizing sin. And then a good brother in Christ, a good neighbor should say, Yeah, I think I think you're right. I'm gonna I'm going to cut that out of my my media diet. Let's show love. That's a loving thing to do. Show love by helping each other to hate evil and hold on to good. It's the second way we can be genuine. A third aspect of genuine love is brotherly affection. I actually think this is a very strong suit of SBCC in a lot of ways, and I just want to affirm it. There's nothing corrective about this or instructive. It's just a few weeks ago, I saw two of our young guys in the lobby after a service. And I know that they're in a life group together, and I know that they share deeply and regularly, and one of them was about to speak in college group or young adult ministry. I don't quite remember um, which night it was. Um, And knowing this and all the feelings and thoughts that were running through his brother's head, one guy Oh, this is really moving to me. One guy just threw his arms around him and prayed over his shoulder and right into his ear for just a good minute, standing there in the lobby like that, just blessing him in prayer. That, is, that was just beautiful, genuine, brotherly, affectionate love. And that's the kind of thing that good Christian neighbors do. We see that in a lot of ways at South Bay Community Church. And praise the Lord for that. Keep doing that. Lastly, in this section, we see phrases like outdo one another. There's excess. There's a lot there. Contribute to needs. Be fervent. And all of that is generosity. All of that, those are types of generosity. I think this passage is telling us that there are a few ways we can be generous. First, we can be generous with our honor. And when we walk into church, let's ask ourselves, like, how can I lift up somebody else today? How can I help them to feel loved and respected and encouraged? Being stingy with honor, non-generous. Is that that a word? 
not generous, uh, would mean that we rarely give encouragement or, or affirmation. There are plenty of moments when we could speak positively in, into someone's life or heart, but we just hold back because maybe oh, we feel like they don't deserve it or that, that wasn't done for me when I was growing up. No, 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 let's not do that. Let's just give it away really open-handedly and freely be generous with our honor. Let's help other people to know you are valuable to the church. You are precious in God's sight. We want to be generous with that honor. Second, we can be generous with our energy. Verse 11 talks about zeal and fervency, really fun words, in the spirit, which is about being committed and diligent in our growing, in our gifts, in our generous love. It's getting after it. You know, fervent, the word comes in Greek, comes from the word zeo, which means fired up, it means excited, it means glowing with enthusiasm. I was working on the Glow Gifts station uh, out in the lobby with a couple sisters in Christ recently, and as we were doing this work, uh, staying late, coming in early for that, you know, I, I was a little worried about them, that it, that it would be a burden, because they've been working really hard lately. I didn't want to burn them out or overwhelm. But they said, no, 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 they were legitimately positive about this project, and said, this is fun, we're ha- really happy to do this. I was really encouraged by that. And so you could see their passion and their enthusiasm, the generosity with their energy just carrying them through the tasks of making the cards and the wall decals that you see and the web pages and, and all that goes along with that. There was no reluctance or slothfulness, like, oh, this is dumb kind of stuff. They were just eager, fired up to contribute to Christian community. But how can you, how can you be fired up and generous with your energy if you're fried? Like you work 70 hours a week and you got kids running around the house and you just never get to sleep. I saw an example of this uh, a few weeks ago when we kicked off an Ohana Young Families group uh, recently. And I I was so deeply encouraged when two parents showed up to to our launch dinner with just droopy eyes and coffee in their hands and baby food on their shirt. The whole scene, you know the look. And these guys were just under constant deadlines. They've been staying up till 2, 3 in the morning uh, trying to get their work done. The kids are tearing up the house. They were sharing with me, like, they're just making these crazy messes while we're trying to focus on our work and all that. And they were just fatigued beyond what a lot of us could handle. I felt so bad for them. And they were really honest, transparent with me and said, you know, we didn't really want to be here today, but we believe so deeply that Christian community is important. We know we need this. We, need, we want to plug into this. So we dragged ourselves here. I was so encouraged by that. That is generosity of energy. A lot of you probably feel that way, just physically drained and socially exhausted. But please know that the Holy Spirit within you at work among us can supernaturally push us to be generous with our energy, even beyond our capacity, like that sweet couple with coffee, so that we can contribute to Christian community. We can be generous with our honor, with our energy, and also with our space and our stuff. We can be generous with our space and our stuff. Generosity of space is hospitality. And that's what says, come into my home, my car, my office, so that you can be safe and cared for and your needs can be met. Generosity with our stuff. I I think, I don't need to say much about this. South Bay Community Church really sets the bar on this. That's no exaggeration. And we say this uh, every week during announcements, and it's absolutely sincere. I worry that it's just noise, but we totally, totally mean this. We are so deeply and constantly grateful for your incredible giving. This church is good at generosity. Praise the Lord. And we are able to do so much great ministry because of that. We honestly uh, just worship God for your faithful giving. And we're genuinely encouraged and excited because you guys are generous with your stuff. 
And I just want us to keep going. It's a beautiful thing. A good neighbor is growing, gifted, genuine, and generous. And there's a lot of actionable opportunity in what we talked about today. And because this last idea could fit under any of those four words, I'll just close with this and leave it right here. We have a newer ministry at SBCC called Prayer and Presence, which reaches out to uh, this, those who are sick and alone, uh, those who maybe are, are aging and struggling in some way. And this ministry really does beautifully embody the generosity and the genuine love and the using our gifts and the showing honor that we read about and talked about today in Romans 12. And we would love to see it grow. And we need it to grow because the needs of the church are just ever increasing. So if you're gifted in serving and contributing in mercy in leadership, if you have a caring and a compassionate heart, we would love to know if you want to get more formally involved in this kind of ministry. Our dream is that this would grow so much that it becomes uh, something that can, can be more specific groups and, and teams that can serve widows, that can uh, meet people in crisis and grief and help with trauma recovery and offer legal and medical and financial support and a lot more really specific needs. And so if you're open to that, if you're even thinking about it, or you feel the Lord kind of pulling you in that direction, I want to encourage you after church today or even right now, send a quick email to Pastor James. James at SouthBayCommunityChurch.com. He's like our point guy for this. He's doing a great job coordinating everything. And I want to challenge you to help him build a list of servants uh, for future care ministry needs. We would love for you to be a part of that. Uh, but if that's maybe not your gifting, your sense of calling, but you do know that there's somebody in your life or in your circle who, who needs a check-in or a visit in the hospital or just some prayer and support. Also, you can pastor, uh, contact Pastor James or any of the pastors. We'll get it to the right place. Um, but Pastor James will, uh, will route that to the right places and make sure that they're connected with somebody from the prayer and presence team. That might be one way that you respond and apply Romans 12 today, or maybe the way the Lord is uh, inspiring you to, to apply this is by internally reorienting and rerouting your spiritual growth, not out of your own efforts, but from the death and resurrection of Jesus, like we talked about. Maybe the Lord is using this passage to help us to discover or explore our spiritual gifts for the first time, put them into practice. Maybe he's encouraging you to be more genuine and transparent, letting his light shine through your stories and your struggles even if it feels a little uncomfortable. Or perhaps it's convicting you to be genuinely discerning about what's good and what's evil, and being open to hearing that critique from other believers. Or maybe it's stirring you to be more affectionate to your Christian neighbors. Or maybe the Spirit is pushing us to a new kind of generosity today, through honor, through energy, with our space, with our stuff. Whatever it is, that we're going to go and try this week, whether it's growing or giftedness or genuineness or generosity, I'm confident it's going to help you and me and everybody around us to be the kind of good neighbor who lives out God's vision for Christian community. You know, one special privilege and practice uh, of Christian community that we get to enjoy is communion. Uh, I love that we get to come to the Lord's table on a day like today when we're thinking about how to love and honor one another, how to be good neighbors with each other, because it uh, positions us to take communion with consideration for the rest of the church. That's what 1 Corinthians tells us to do, and that's one of the main ways we prepare ourselves to rightly celebrate this memorial 
of Jesus. To take communion uh, not with self-centeredness or divisions or any kind of competition or, or pretension. Instead, we, we pause and we ask ourselves, is everybody okay? Is everybody here? Everybody have what they need? Is everybody included and loved? That's what we're doing with communion. That's what 1 Corinthians is telling us to do. And the point that it is that communion is not as much a private, personal event as it is a communal gathering of God's people, neighbors in Christ, who we remember each other as we remember what the Lord has done for us. Amen? And so today, let's share this meal with that thoughtful togetherness. And we're going to try it a little differently today. In a moment, the worship team is going to lead us in a song. And while that song is playing, uh, I want to invite you to uh, get up and come to one of the tables that are all around the worship center. If you're in the faith center or the lobby, there should be a table with communion elements as well. If you're at home, please feel free to step aside and, and, and grab bread and juice and do this with us. We're all together in this. And while you're, while you're up grabbing your elements, please do sing along. Like, let's worship together while we, while we do this. And just enjoy the praises of God's people surrounding you and serving as a reminder that we're the body of Christ. I have people around me. We're all neighbors and family of God. You know, to be, to be totally transparent with you, uh, we were supposed to do communion uh, a different way this week. Uh, we were, we, you've seen those little prepackaged cups that we've been using. Uh, we tried to order more of those. And they were supposed to come on Wednesday, and they didn't. And then they were supposed to come on Friday, and they didn't. And so maybe it's no accident, you know, that God wants us to just reshape the way we're doing communion. It allows us to kind of interact a little bit more, be more aware of one another rather than a personal self-serve thing. No, not knocking those, but just today's the day to do this. You know what I'm saying? I think God really orchestrated that in helping us take a different approach. I love that. And so worship team, thank you guys for, uh, for leading us. And I just want to invite everybody, when you're ready, uh, please make your way to a table. Grab your elements, hold on to them. Take them back to your seat, and then I'll come back up and uh, guide us forward from there, okay? Thanks.
would have a seat. And today, God is calling us really clearly to be good neighbors to our church. So let's put that into practice right now. Before I go there, I forgot to say this earlier. If, if you're not able to get up and grab elements, just raise your hand and an usher will come right to you. We want to make sure everybody has, uh, has what they need. But to be good neighbors to one another in church right now, I want to challenge us and invite us to be neighbors who nourish and nurture one another with the good news of Jesus and the mercies of God like we talked about today. So in just a moment, I wanna invite us to look into the eyes of the person who's sitting to our left and then to our right and say to them, Jesus loves you so much, that Jesus died for you, that his, his body, his blood were given for you. Our sins are forgiven because of what Jesus has done. And we can all proclaim the Lord's death until he comes as we do that. You know, if, if you don't yet believe in Jesus though, and that's an uncomfortable thing, please know you are so welcome to place your faith in him right now. Please do. Please accept the gift of forgiveness that he offers you and what this represents. But if you're not ready to do that, just listen, just watch. And here, brothers and sisters in Christ are good neighbors. You know, speak into your heart in this moment and seriously consider what they're saying to you. But if you're a follower of Jesus, with the elements in your hand, go ahead and look to your neighbor to your left and to your right and speak to them that Jesus died for you. This is his body and blood for you. here from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. Let's thank the Lord for this and let's partake together. Heavenly Father, we can never thank you enough for what you have done for us through the work of Jesus at the cross. But right now, we wanna try our best as we, as we celebrate that his body was broken for us, that his blood was spilled for us so that our sins might be forgiven so that we could come together as your people in relationship with one another, in eternally loving relationship with you, Lord. We don't deserve any of that. We didn't earn any of that. You did this all by your grace and your mercy, and we thank you, Lord. We acknowledge that this is a symbol of love. This is the greatest expression of love that we could ever know, and we wanna share that with others around us. And so, Lord, may your, may your love be felt May your gospel be realized and trusted and believed right now. May we be nourished by the mercies of God that we are holding in our hands, Lord. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take together. Father, we acknowledge that this bread and this cup 
symbolize the body and blood of Jesus that were broken and spilled for us at the cross, purchasing the forgiveness of our sins, salvation from death, and eternally loving, restored relationship with you. We're so grateful, Lord, not just for this meal, but for that reality that you have brought us into by your goodness and your grace, Lord. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for being good to us. In the name of Jesus, we celebrate all of this and say, amen.